and welcome to Soft the Symposium. We're your hosts. I'm Doug Daffin. I'm Chris Fendeman, and we've got a fresh new hot take guest for you tonight. This guest's name isn't Andrew or Zach. It's not even. What or- is it, though? Mr. Mr. Coonfield. Oh, um, <clears throat> uh, my name is Douglas Coonfield. That's that's me. I'm also Douglas. All just, right. Just like Douglas. And how, how, how would you characterize yourself, sir? Oh... Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Um, we we'll we'll find out. We'll probably yeah. find out. So Doug is I'm a, a good... character. That's that's about absolutely all you need. Uh, so it's going to be so awkward because I'm going to be referring to Doug and Doug, um, and I really don't want to just go straight to surnames. But Mr. Coonfield is a good friend of ours, fellow law student with us at the same law school. We've known each other for this is our third year of all knowing each other, and uh, we're yeah, good friend of ours, and we're excited to have him on the show. I'm excited to be here. So welcome, Mr. Coonfield. Thanks. Glad to have you. Glad to be here. Thanks. Okay, so the topic tonight was my choice, and what we're going to be talking about is something that is oft maligned, oft discussed, and present pretty much in all kinds of narrative forms of entertainment, uh, songs, poetry, literature, especially film and movies and television, and it is exposition. Exposition that a wonderful part of storytelling where you basically have to bring your audience up to speed on what is going on so that you can tell them the parts of the story that you want to tell them. So first thing that we should talk about is probably our drinks. Obviously, I provide a topic. So Doug, Mr. Daffin, that is, provides the drink. What do we have tonight? All right. So uh, for those of you new to the show, we play a drinking game while we speak because that's the symposium aspect of Sophist Symposium. And our drink for tonight is a vanilla porter from Breckenridge Brewery. Um, tastes pretty good, I think. I understand that Mr. Coonfield's a big fan of this drink as well. I love Breckenridge Brewery. I love uh, the vanilla porter. I think it's wonderful. Um, and uh, it's not the best beer that Breckenridge has ever brewed. They used to brew a beer called Pandora's Bach. If anyone from Breckenridge Brewery ever listens to this, please bring back the Bach. Please. Your customer is begging you, man. So, was this like a happy accident that you guys like both love this the beer that was brought here, or like? Uh, there's no conspiracy behind the beer. Oh, conspiracy. Um, <laughs> I like no to, such thing. I like to fabricate uh, conspiracies to explain things I don't understand. You know how it works. Yes. So, um, so for the drinking game, yes, um, we're playing tonight. So normally in uh in media you don't see characters with the same name it's sort of a conservation of information um you don't want the audience members to get their um minds crossed oh boy uh some some people indeed do have uh characters with the same name uh george rr martin has like five johns i think in game of thrones something like that well there's only so many names yeah and like and they have reasons to do it because they're named after the same people um (laughs) So he doesn't mind, but most most places uh you wouldn't see two dugs in a in a TV show. I don't know if before law school I ever saw two dugs in one place ever. Is it that rare a name? Except like my dad. My dad is also a dug. It's a not that common name. Hmm. It was popular yeah. in like maybe the 50s and it is not anymore at least in in America. We are one dug away from a dug trio, but I guess that just makes oh, us Douglas. No. Oh God! <laughs> if you think I'm out of Doug puns, you're sorely mistaken. Well, here's the problem: is because 
<laughs> because we're not we're not Doug. Oh God! All right, I'm gonna let you have hey, it. Hey, every Doug has his day. I'm gonna let you have it. Okay, <laughs> I'm gonna let you have it. <laughs> All right. So, um, so yeah, the drinking game then is anytime uh, Chris refers to either one of us as Doug, uh, we take a drink. I don't think we have enough drinks for this. We've got. <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You dug yeah, yourself just, into this. Yeah. Um, and for those for those worrying about our personal health, um, just a reminder that when we take a drink, we're only really taking like a swig or so of our um, drink. Oh wait, is that how it's supposed to work? I, we're <laughs> taking however much we want. But we're we're law students, so we know how to moderate our alcohol consumption. Oh yeah, yeah. mind your own business. We're really <laughs> temperate people. You should know that. All right, so uh, here's the thing. Also, so I mean, I don't even have a name for this, but I really feel like it's it's the most obvious thing in the world, and sort of by way of apology, if we have to explain something to one another of background information we don't already have, considering oh, no. that's the name of the thing and that's the whole point of exposition, probably need to take a drink. And for that because too. I didn't do my homework. Well, I mean, sure. <laughs> All right. um but wait, wait it's not gonna be that bad it's not gonna be that bad so yeah um okay exposition let's get started um there's one thing we have to clear up before we get to the really fun part which i hope will be most of the show do you guys so do we all understand what exposition is actually let me just give a little bit of background so the the structure of storytelling basically has four component parts at least that's what's suggested by the uh wikipedia article about narrative exposition those four parts are exposition, description, argumentation, and narration. The exposition part of it is basically the background information that you just need to communicate one way or another so that whoever's reading or watching or listening gets what they need in order to understand the story you actually want to tell. So you get what I mean? Exposition is not the story you want to tell. It's the background stuff you just got to get across so that the audience can start getting into the good stuff. It's context. Absolutely. It yeah. is context. It's the context that is it's, – it's the chaff around the story that needs to be there. So would you guys agree with me that all narration uh, – not narration because that's a different part of, of storytelling. All storytelling requires some degree of exposition. Absolutely. All right, and um, I disagree. Okay, Mr. Daffin, why is that? Um, I mean, we live in we've lived in an era of modern art that tries to define and then break boundaries for the last hundred years. Um, I'm pretty sure someone out there has done experiments into just simply trying to tell stories without exposition. I mean, you can try to tell stories without expository dialogue or um, like actual like narrative, like descriptive exposition. Descriptive is probably not the right word for that, but I don't think that it's possible to tell the story where something you're communicating isn't performing the function of exposing context. I agree, and I think you know one one sort of spectrum that I was thinking of of working on with you guys is I think that there are kinds of storytelling and really. We can narrow this down to, like, television and movies, which is really where I want to focus, but it's everywhere. Like, I think that there are some genres of movies and, and television that require very little exposition. I think, like, for example, romantic comedies would be one of them. Like, we get almost everything we need to know just by understanding this is a story about people interacting with each other and going through 
triumphs and tribulations. Most people understand, aha, got it. Yep, human beings. Understood. But even then, you have to get some backstory about the characters in order to understand why they do the stuff that they do, and whether it's through dialogue or just the little ways the movie, like, takes you along the road of understanding who these people are. You can't avoid exposition. Well, I have I have a thought that you can create a story without exposition inside the story. If you use um, cliches or archetypes or something, that there's cultural... Uh, knowledge of what those characters already are. Sure, but that that still at which point, like the exposition would be outside of the story. Well, I don't know and because not internal to the story. In order to reference that outside exposition, you are in, you are in fact doing what's called incluing or indirect exposition. So let me give you an example, and this is another thing that I found on the Wikipedia page. If you write in your story, I shoved it into my purse. And this is the actual example that they give. I understand, you know, obviously we live in an age where that is not an assumed anymore. That's not my purse. Or, or, <laughs> or, or, you know, you know what I'm saying. But essentially the, the classic example given is I shoved it into my purse is you figuring out by including by indirect exposition that the character narrating is probably female. You see what I mean? Yeah. They did that by referencing a cliche concept in order that you understand something without directly telling you. That's indirect. That's including. That's indirect exposition. You see what I mean now? So I think you were interpreting his original question as, can you tell a story without direct exposition? And and I think it is correct that you don't need direct exposition. But anything that provides context, even if it's well, not deliberate yeah, or if, it's interpretable. And if we're going to go that far, then it's then the answer is just that exposition's inherent in storytelling. That's that's because I think you what can't I... separate the two. Agreed. Like storytelling is exposition. I think so too. I mean, this this is this first bit was uh, sort of if if it's if it's a uh, what's the word I'm looking for? What's the thing where the thing dis- the thing makes itself true? A duck. Oh wait. <laughs> oh yeah. Sophistry. No 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 no. Ah oh, God, I'll think of it later. Um, but anyway. This is just meant to be a really quick and easy premise so we can just start talking about it. So now that we're pretty clear on what exposition is, most of the time when people talk about exposition, they're talking about some real sins and how bad it can get. So I'd like to hear from you both what your favorite example is of terrible, terrible, terrible exposition in a movie or television. It can be a specific example or it could just be an entire category. Which one of us should go first? Uh, I'm going to jump in. Yeah. Um, I think in general, sci-fi movies are the worst at this because there's there's so much knowledge that's not going to be able to be brought to the table through indirect exposition in a lot of ways, like technology base or, um, I don't know, something about the culture if you're in an empire or there's an alien whatever, and you end up with just terrible examples of expository dialogue where you've got characters talking to one another about things that literally anyone that grew up in that society would know off the top of their head. So it's like the equivalent of me turning on a water faucet and explaining to Doug over here, I'm going to get some water out of this water faucet now. And that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't help anybody. And it's just the most unrealistic dialogue that's physically possible. Oh, um, man. That's that's the stuff that really gets me. Okay. Thanks, Doug. What about you, Doug? Um, it's two <laughs> drinks. We have this gavel right here um, that is 
we use to signify when we take a drink. It's a new thing for this season because a lot of people uh, were saying, hey, I don't, y'all just sort of randomly like go silent, go silent for a moment. And that's when we're taking the drink. Yeah. But I'm going to forget about the gavel like all the time. So, I mean, um, on a previous show, I was very clear, like, okay, everybody in the audience, when we like just start talking for a second after like laughing suddenly or like randomly redeclaring words we've already said, that's drink time. Right. Anyway, so, I would also just invite everyone listening to add your own drinking game to this also. Just drink nonstop. We'll sound a whole lot better. Yeah. My favorite drinking game is uh, anytime I want to take a drink, I take a drink. That's amazing. That's a fantastic drinking game. What do you game. call that? Drinking. I um, believe we... I think we used that rule during our hedonism episode with Zach. You know, the one that's unlistenable. Because the audio quality got butchered. It's a shame because it's so good. Anyway, yeah. Doug. So, um, yeah, terrible sure exposition great. besides what we just witnessed. Um, I'm going to have to say The Room uh, oh my is God. a natural example. Specifically, a <laughs> lot of um, Tommy Wiseau's lines. Like, uh, Mark's my best friend. You're my best friend. So, like, he constantly repeats it in case the audience has forgotten, mm-hmm. I suppose. Um but I think the star is the, when the old lady comes back and she's like, I just got back from the doctor. It's definitely breast cancer. Oh, yeah. And then it's never brought up again. It never goes anywhere. That information doesn't matter to any <laughs> at all, to the script, to anybody. <laughs> the Room is a beautiful thing. If there was ever a movie that could really use more exposition, that would, that would be the film. Um I think a couple of my favorite examples of bad exposition. One, let's talk about sci-fi movies. Um, Star Wars 2, Attack of the Clones. Is that right? That's, that's the one. Okay. So there's a particularly famous scene in this movie. And here's the thing that's so bad about it. It's not even in the category of our audience doesn't understand our space age technology and we really need to tell them somehow. It's instead in the realm of Because the viewer does not yet know a fact, two characters who already know these facts will talk at each other about facts that they both already know so that you can overhear it and learn it yourself. So there's a scene where Count Dooku is like talking to the the Confederate uh, Council on Geonosis and Ben Kenobi— Did we give out a spoiler warning? Oh, yeah. I'm really sorry, guys. Spoiler warning. That movie sucks. (laughs) (laughs) It's like sand. It's so coarse and it gets everywhere. Oh, you got to stop. So, okay. So, it's not Ben. Is it? Hang on. Oh, my God. Yes. Obi-Wan Kenobi is running around trying to, well, spy on these people. And there's like a conversation between Dooku and someone else. And it's literally like... I have sold you many war machines. They are great battle droids, and you have them, and they are advanced. Yes, and I have paid you much for this. Okay, awesome. Now we will kill the Jedi. Okay, great. It's like, it's two characters who are just literally explaining each other facts that they both are very, very familiar with. In case you forgot the plan that both of us have been working on for six months, here it is again. We are the two conspirators who know this information the best. But hey, uh, isn't it interesting that? Another great, great example of terrible exposition. Have y'all had the pleasure of seeing the movie Bright? I no. did watch Bright. Netflix and I don't exclusive. even care. I liked it. I liked it too. I don't care. It's good. I actually liked it's it. It's the bad kind of good. I not think, even, it's not even like 
so bad that it's good. It's just like a fun, not very good movie. I have, I, I'm pretty, you know what? And there are things about Bright that we're going to talk about later, which I think it actually does really well. But let's talk about the one moment in the movie where I was like, oh no. It's the scene where the elf and his human partner have got the circle of light guy in their interrogation room, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, Mr. Daffin. For your reference, this is a movie about a world in which it's complete. It's a modern world, completely normal. It's just that in this world, you have orcs and elves, as long as well as humans and other magical creatures. It's a drink, by the way. Yes, sir. Mister Expos, fuck. I'm Mister Expos. I'm the I'm the expositioner. So, okay. So this guy. Our main character, Will Smith, is a cop in this in a police department in isn't it like LAPD actually? I think it's LAPD. Yeah, yeah. and it's like the most stereotypical version of the LAPD. And he's got a new partner who is an orc, and the orcs are like the undercast of society, and the overcast of society is elves, and the elves basically run everything. They've he's, got all the money. He's the only orc cop. He's the only one. First one ever. Only one ever. Okay, so there's a scene. I, God, I, I'm trying to. I'm trying to minimize the exposition because there's a lot. But in any event, there's a scene where a guy who's part of like a weird outcast magical order is hauled into an interrogation room. And this government entity – what's the name of this government entity? I'm trying to remember. It's basically the Ministry of Magic. Yeah, I don't – I don't. it doesn't matter at all. So they whip out their like – so the whole point of the movie is that there's a magical wand and it's gone missing and it's like a weapon of mass destruction and they've got to get it back. Okay. All wands are this. It's not like – Oh yeah, they're all wands. There's it's few not like wands. This is a special wand. It's like wands are a rare artifact that, in the hands of a magic user called a bright, mm-hmm. um, can, they can just do miracles. all kinds of terrible miracle magic stuff. And in the hands of not that, they are weapons of mass destruction. Uh, well, they're weapons of mass destruction either way. So, like, the Ministry of Magic has got this guy, and they think this guy knows something, right? So they whip out their badges, and they're like. That's right. We're the, like, Ministry of Magic or something like that. And then they start interrogating this guy, and dude literally looks at the guy, like, the human partner for the elf, and just literally says something to the effect of, like, you know who we are. We're the Ministry of Magic. Our job is to track down wands. Wands are dangerous because if you have a wand, then it could be used for all kinds of terrible miracle magic. And we think you have one of these wands, so you know how this goes. You have to tell us what it, where it is. So it's good cop, expository cop. It's literally like, and I think because he delivers it really angrily, and I think it's his like his desperate attempt to turn that line into something speakable. But God, it looks awful because he's literally yelling at a man facts that as he is talking, he is in fact saying, you already know the following. This is my job. Here is why it is my job. This is your position. Just so you know what you already know. And in fact, what everyone else knows. It's so bad. So that's an example of some terrible exposition. Otherwise, Bright's perfect and should be watched by everyone. 100%. We're going we're gonna to get back around to Bright. So that having been said, what do you guys remember as some really positive moments of exposition? I really think... I really think the best exposition is that indirect exposition where you figure it out kind of as you go who the important people are and who the not so important people are. I'm drawing a blank um, for a specific um, 
I'm sure it'll come to me by the time we're done. But well, what about what about you, Doug? Um, Take a drink. I like the Lord of the Rings exposition um, in the films, yes. just because it's directed well. Um, I don't know if it's good exposition or bad exposition, but it really sets the mood to the movies. Also, Star Wars. Um, oh, right. The the theme at the beginning of the scrolling credits. Um, the crawl. Yeah, like that's that's a hell of a way to get someone into the movie. Show them a minimal amount of exposition, usually like three or four paragraphs. Um, some of them are really bad. Some of them are really good. So this is a category that I want to talk about. So you've got the opening crawl. You've got the direct, let me just tell, like literally yeah. let me just tell you what's up, which is the Lord of the Rings style. And then here's a third one that I think is in the same category. What do you guys think about, this is very popular in apocalyptic movies, especially like Geostorm, zombie movies, like anything where there's a big disaster, the opening montage. What do you guys think about that? Like, and what I mean is like news clippings and it's like, you know, for like Geostorm, it was like temperatures rose above blah, blah, blah today or like. Oh, two million dead in a heat wave in in Madrid this summer, and you like that kind of thing. You Actually, know what I'm talking about? If we're, yeah, if if we're gonna go that far, then I'm gonna say my favorite opening is um, Fallout. Ooh. For Fallout Three, uh, they zoom out on the um, song "I Don't Want to Set the World on Fire," and you just see the ruins of New York, and then it does the monologue thing dc but I'll, i'm adding that to my uh good exposition because it sets the like it it zooms out and you see a devastated capital wasteland. right yeah dc so, yeah yeah um but what, that's not the, quite the montage um it's not quite a montage either but batman versus superman the very beginning where you get like i mean tell me about I'm, that because i didn't see it okay and so I'm gonna take a drink. that's a drink okay for us so it's um it's obviously a sequel to Man of Steel, which uh has Wait, its own it is? has its own problems. Are you serious? Yeah, they're all part of the same universe. There's Man of Steel, there's what? Batman versus Superman, and then there's Wonder Woman. Suicide Squad then, is in it too. Uh no, Suicide Squad's not a real movie that never happened. Suicide Squad won an Oscar. Uh, an Academy Award. I even, can't even hear you for a little excellence in filmmaking. You gotta stop. So um Academy Award winning <laughs> movie, have Suicide you seen, Squad. Have you seen Man of Steel? Yeah, uh, no, actually, I've okay. seen zero. I've, I've seen, seen parts of it. I've seen Suicide Squad. And Have you Wonder seen Wonder Woman? Woman? Okay, I've seen Wonder good. Woman. So, um, I haven't seen Wonder just Woman. to really quickly summarize, Man of Steel does um, at, at one point in Man of Steel, uh, Superman is fighting Zod on Earth, and they That's a drink within a drink. That's yeah, you're probably right. Right, right. We, we're in Inception drinking at this point. Have you seen Inception? Because I no. could explain that too. Stop it. <laughs> but um, I haven't. Can't, wait, hang on. Having seen Inception three times, can you please explain Inception to me? Oh, God. <laughs> okay, go on, go on. Okay, so at one point, Zod and Superman are fighting, and they end up fighting at least a little bit in, I think, Gotham. And they knock out some buildings and stuff, and it ends up being this like major tragedy where like parts of Metropolis gets destroyed, parts of Gotham gets destroyed. I think a big hole in the Indian Ocean happens. I'm not sure. It doesn't matter. Um, well, the beginning of Batman versus Superman, you get that fight from the perspective of Bruce Wayne, who's in Gotham trying to help people out of, like, Wayne Tower. 
uh, his employees and stuff and trying to lead them to safety. So you get this really quick context for where Bruce Wayne is when the last movie happened. So you have an understanding of why he's so upset and angry at the Kryptonian. Um, it's, it's a real quick way to kind of catch up that character and explain his jadedness. Um, that I think, I think does a fairly good job. That movie, it's got tons and tons of flaws. Um, but that moment, I, I kind of like the way they portrayed Bruce Wayne. And I think that was a good way to get him, uh, fleshed out very quickly. Did we all watch Wonder Woman? No. Oh God. I, I like Wonder I'm Woman. I'm avoiding the DC movies. Well, I think Wonder Woman's worth it. All right. Doug, who did watch it. What did yeah. you think about the, um, the like epic painting version narration uh uh exposition they did um so this was that big like we were created and then cast aside and then we won a war and then but uh oh yeah and aries then, is always a dick right remember I, that yeah it was fine um okay. i think i think it's i think it's fine um i don't, know. I don't See, really have a lot to say about that here here's let's go back to fallout for a second so Here's the interesting thing about I, Fallout. I haven't played Fallout, so okay. So somebody exposed me to something. Yeah, fortunately, this is easy to expose. Um, the scene that Mr. Daffin was describing was very beginning of the game, opening credits. You're just looking at a radio inside of a bus on a ruined street with a lot of debris on it, and it's playing. What is that like a '50s song? Yeah, called "I Don't Want to Set the World on Fire." It's this slow, like lilting. Uh, song and it's through like the crackling lo-fi radio and it pulls out and it pulls out and you just see this law like this wide expanse of gray ruined buildings shattered concrete broken sidewalks just a ruined world devastated by some kind of cataclysmic event and then at the very end a large dude in super heavy armor like carrying a super advanced technology laser gun turns and looks at you and then I think that's the end. I just think that's the end. Isn't that right? Sounds about right. Um... See, I, I don't think that's, that's not in the category that we're talking. I think that's good exposition. But that's going to be the kind of indirect exposition I think we're going to be talking about in just a few minutes. I think when I'm talking, because what's that really telling you, right? All it's telling you is that shit has gone sideways. The world got blown up. But the music is still old-fashioned music. And so there's like a weird cultural uh, thing going on. It exposes the setting. It does. But it does so in a way that is not as direct as the montage, the the direct narration, and the opening crawl. Like those are all kinds of expositions where basically the movie director is sitting you down and is like, all right, listen. Before we start, here's what you need to know. And we're just going to get it to, to you as quickly as possible and as efficiently as possible. Once you got it, good. We'll get started. You see what I mean? So, are y'all? Would y'all follow me that that's like its own category of exposition, like the direct narrative? Like, all right, dude, just sit down. We're gonna crank this out fast, and then you're gonna get it. The let's get caught up real quick stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Isn't it interesting though how we all have a positive? I mean, Doug Coonfield, I think you have a positive outlook on it. I have a positive outlook on the examples that we've cited. Mr. Daffin, what do you think? I mean, I cited positive examples, and if we're going with the idea that 
um, exposition cannot be removed from storytelling, then there has to be good exposition and bad exposition. Absolutely. I just – it's interesting to me, I think, because would you also agree with me that exposition is sort of – all right, let me put it this way. When a person gets started on writing a story, would you agree with me that probably exposition is the kind of thing that they consider to be just an obligation that really if they had it their way, they'd rather not do? Um. I disagree because I think it depends on the writer. Um, Lemony Snicket fucking loved exposition. Uh, he'd write a whole book of exposition if he could. Okay, actually, that's a very good point. Yeah, series of unfortunate events. Um, did you ever read those, Doug? They might be a little... I did not. Yeah, you might have been an old... What, do, what are you time. trying to say, Doug? Uh, you can't teach an old Doug new tricks. Oh, my God. <sighs> yeah, so... Um, the narrator in that story exists as a character within the universe, and he has a really fun time with exposition and playing around with it. Um, I mean, you're probably right. Like, there's yeah. there's just entire chapters of exposition in yeah. George R. R. Martin, and I'm painting yeah, with too broad a brush. He certainly didn't have a, you know, he certainly didn't only view it as an obligation. No, you're right. You're right. But it just, you know, here's here's my idea, especially with film. I think especially with film, it seems that it would just be easier to just tell the story, right? Yeah, and I think film's different because um, film, you have to worry about the time more than you have to worry about length in a book, Mm -hmm. I think. So before we transition into, I think, more of a discussion about indirect exposition or what's been called incluing, let's talk about sort of a transitional piece of open opening narration that you might agree with me seems to kind of straddle the line. Have we all watched some Star Trek? Yeah. Yes. Okay. We're familiar with the opening uh, quote is what people call it. I'm sure that's not really the way to call it, but it's the opening lines from the intro to the first two series of Star Trek, right? Space. Space. The The final final frontier. frontier. Yep. Here we go. No, keep going. Because I voyages of the Starship, Starship Enterprise, Enterprise on its either five-year mission or continuing mission, depending on the series, to uh, hang on, seek out new life, new civilizations, and new civilizations to explore new planets to boldly go where no man has gone before, or or man, or it could be or person, or it changes from man to the in the later season. They do. They yeah. yeah. You're absolutely right. So let's talk actually about what we're getting out of that right because it's a person in one of the movies and it's no one in uh the tng okay awesome also if we're talking about um if i can add a good example of exposition i want to say the captain's log at star trek is generally fantastic oh. exposition oh, oh we're gonna talk point. we are gonna talk about the captain's log i promise but before we get there so let's talk about what we're getting captain's out log. of that captain's log supplemental star date blah 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 blah, 0.7 i always love that there was a decimal in the star date so you know what that means right like there's an actual like other than the original series okay yeah no actually tell me that's the first number the first number in tng and the subsequent ones is the number of the season of like if you call season one of the next generation all of those start with one and it goes on from there so that season two season three um you in the other series use the tng number marker and um the second number i I think is the episode number and then um from there it's 
parts within that episode. It's an episode marker within the season. That is really interesting. Cool. I didn't know that. Um, other Doug, can you hand me a beer real quick? Yeah. Thank you. I'm in the middle. Let me do. I do that. Awesome. And I also need a bottle opener from you. Um, so You're so needy. I need a lot of things in life. Um, I get to use the cool one this time. So, okay, let's talk about the opening uh, statement in the Star Trek series. The one with the boldly going. It tells you some stuff. It really doesn't directly tell you a lot. It tells you that there's a ship and that it's on a mission. But there's a lot that you can understand from that, right? You can understand that they are on a an exploration kind of mission and they're not like in the Navy. You can understand that there's a certain scientific and like exploration bent to the crew, to the uh, ethos on the ship. You can understand that there is some entity that has sent them out there, but we get no mention of anything like, well, we are we are in the service of the Federation, Starfleet, or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So what's interesting about the opening like credits of Star Trek is it looks and feels like like opening crawl from Star Wars, but it's very different. Because the opening crawl from Star Wars is just straight up like, all right, hey Buster, here's the th- here here's what's going on. You got an empire, it's evil, you got a rebel alliance, it's good. Here are some of the major figures. Uh, here are the good guys and here are the bad guys. Stuff is happening. Stuff has been going on. Here's basically what it is. And here's what you're about to see. All right, done. Roll roll movie, right? right? But Star Trek, pretty different. Wouldn't you guys agree with me? You're not actually getting very much. Yeah, um, one thing I'd like to expand on that is that it's uh, it's a serious opener. Um, like the episode introductions. In most TV shows, those are exposition to what the series is as a whole, rather than what the specific episode's contents are. So you get, like, Star Trek, but if you look at Gilligan's Island's um, opener, it's a song about how they wound up on the island. If you look at um, Fairly Odd Parents' opener, it's a... Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, like, exposition on why Tammy has fairies that grant him wishes. Um, and both those kinds of openers are much more actually descriptive than Star Trek says. Yeah. Oh, and SpongeBob. Yeah, yeah like every, pretty much every. Well, SpongeBob's isn't really. It's I mean, just, he hey, li- this is a comedy about a sponge under the well, sea. Well, it does explain yeah. that he's he lives in a pineapple, which right. I think is important for context. Right, and it's different from Star Wars, which has a, a its opening sprawl relates to the specific contents of each movie. Um, I think yeah, the, the yeah. fair equivalent in Star Trek, I think, would be the first captain would be log. the captain's logs. Oh, oh, certainly. Or the last time on Star Trek Enterprise, like yes, saying if there was like a, a season holder or cliff cliffhanger. No, yeah, absolutely. I I just think that you know the difference is because with Star Wars, it's not just what's about to happen in that film. The first Star Wars opening line, like Star Wars Episode Four: New Hope, that's yeah. not just here's what's going on in this movie. That is actually, this is the Star Wars universe that you need to understand. There's an empire, there's a rebel alliance, they're fighting, one's good, one is pure evil, and here's what you're caring about right now. Like, it's it's not just, this time we're going to follow the following couple of heroes on the planet. No, it's it's like literally, hey, this is what Star Wars is, is that opening crawl. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, it is descriptive of the entire adventure. Yeah. Um, okay, so considering the fact that we've got this weird kind of indirect 
exposition in Star Wars opener, which is presented in a very direct format, let's talk about Captain's Logs, which I think are brilliant in their own way. So they are they are they are well embedded in the universe, right? Mm-hmm. They are like a person is actually saying it in the world. It's not like you don't it's not a narrator. It's not someone like, hey audience, I know I'm in the movie, but I'm also telling you what's going on. Right? right. And in that way it ends up being kind of indirect, even though it is very much like directly Hey, listener, uh, here's what's going on right now. It, I think, was an extremely clever way for them, and especially the original series, to have a reason to bring up expository dialogue. And there are parts of the, the show, of the various series, where somebody's making a log that nobody would make, and it's obviously, like, I don't have a detail like explanation or example Wait, you right haven't now. memorized all of the I, captain's not yet, logs not yet but I'm, i I remember having feelings i think voyager did it a couple of times where i was like nobody would record a log right now it doesn't make any sense for them to be doing a log right now um this is just so if i got up and went to the bathroom during a commercial break and i came back i'd know it was up uh, and that's fine like i think i think that's necessary sometimes and i think it's a good hook um, it's a good tool, and I'm glad that Star Trek does that thing. Do either of you have an example, and I only ask because I do have one, mm-hmm. of like a particular favorite use of the uh, captain's log at any point in the Star Trek series? So I'm about 100% sure I know what you're about to pull out. I think we've talked about it already. Um, And it's good. Um, but I liked um, season one of TNG. There was a moment where, um, where, forgive me if I forget, I, I have forgotten the characters' names. That's but okay. They're, they show up in like two episodes. Um, where like an admiral, uh, sort of inspects what Kirk's been, or Picard, wow, what Picard's been doing. Um, and he has someone go through the captain's logs and they sort of, they comment on the things that have happened in there. That's interesting. Um, I like that just as a sort of reinforcement of the that these exist and they serve a purpose. Um, they're not just exposition, but like I, it's part of the really clever storytelling. But I don't have um, any particular captain's logs that I thought were impressive. Well, I, honestly, that was really more my question, is the use of the captain's log in a way that was really compelling. And I think you make a great point that when you – when you root it in the universe, like the payoff for the audience is like, look, they they are using, they're looking at it. Uh, I think that's great. What about you, Doug? I think that the point of the captain's log is once it's uh, once it's being used and, and it's embedded in the universe, the way Doug just mentioned. Um, I think it it goes invisible. We forget that it's there. Um, most of the time that it's happening, and that's what makes it good exposition. We're not looking at it as a catch-up thing. We just kind of absorb the information and move on when it's working correctly. So the fact that I can't think of a good one means it's performing its function. So hold on to the concept of it's invisible when it's working well, because we're going to circle back around to that a lot. Um, so this is what uh, 
Doug Coonfield was was waiting for. Um, I think this is the only time that this happens on any Star Trek episode is when the captain's log itself is both the medium of and also a like a tool for a major moment of of like a major I don't want to say character growth more like just a major event for a character huge spoilers for DS9 so captain cisco in the episode it's latin so i have to look it up inter arma enum silent legus which is latin for in times of war laws are silent it's the episode where it's the midst of the dominion wars and he is over in Romulan territory. I think, I think we have to drink now. Uh-oh. Oh, yeah. Here we go. Dominion Wars. Uh, Alpha Quadrants being invaded by invaders from afar, the founders and their Jem'Hadar soldiers of the Dominion. So, in Romulan space, Captain Sisko is there ostensibly on a diplomatic mission to try to get the Romulans into the war on the Federation side. He ends up becoming embroiled in this complex assassination sort of thing. It ends up being an assassination in order to trick the Romulan Star Empire into believing that the Dominion were the ones who sabotaged and assassinated one of their ambassadors. The story is told in a really in medias res, like a in the middle of things style, where you're getting clips of the story that are set up by, hey, uh, Captain's log, this is what happened here, this is what happened here, and Cisco is narrating the entire story. And he's becoming increasingly aware of his own moral uh, culpability for his involvement in all of this, and for his ultimate inability to tell everybody what really happened. Because he comes, becomes aware that the Federation is ultimately responsible for this subterfuge. And then he gets done telling the whole story, realizes that at the end of the day, he's going to be able to live with the fact that if it saves the Federation, he'll give up his moral, his he'll give up his consciousness and his respect for himself. And then he tells the computer to delete the entire captain's log. I think that is brilliant. I don't think there's ever a mom, another moment in Star Trek where a uh, captain deletes their own log except unless it's like a joking thing like maybe from time to time like picard would be like oh that wasn't right delete that or something like that but well, i think there's a uh, episode where they run across like a really private alien that's either like erase all logs of us or we're gonna kill you and they erase all the memory but i think besides that okay i actually completely <laughs> that one completely slipped my notice so the aliens did a good job of making you forget about them yeah, they, they nailed it, dude. Um, I didn't even rem- remember them at all. So, okay, let's let's swing back around into more indirect exposition. Um, be funny if you made up that episode. Dude, that would be hilarious, actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah remember I that episode we'll where the, uh, the aliens uh, wipe everybody's memory and, and no one remembers what happened? No? <laughs> okay, so now let me wrap back around. I remember As- watching like 30 minutes of Blank Space. yeah dude um so when we get back into talking more about indirect exposition i want to circle back around to like these more broad categories of let's let's still stick with films and television and Mm -hmm. but you know reference to other things always welcome we talked earlier about a, a sort of way that we might look at these things as a spectrum and on one end of the spectrum and now i'd I'd like to actually hear some feedback from you guys 
It feels like, to me, the kind of movie that requires the least exposition, although still some, is like a rom-com. Like, do you guys know what I mean by that? And what are your thoughts on that? So, I think anything that's generally set in, like, modern times or, or some contemporary setting um, where you don't have some weird off-the-beat kind of a plot doesn't need a lot of um, catch-up work that exposition performs. Well, let me ask you this. So maybe you can articulate. Why do you think that is? Because indirect exposition is ultimately more efficient because it plays off of all of our, um, like, all of the things that we already know. And there's not... So in a rom-com, it's just people like us in a situation that we know. And that's going to be also true for a lot of kind of normal comedies. Like, I don't, I never watched it, but, um, what's that stupid Adam Sandler movie where their parents, doesn't matter. Narrowed it down. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Great job. Stupid Adam Sandler parents. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. Anything. Anything that's set where we all know somebody like this and the situation's not that weird, um, you don't need to provide any additional context because anybody that lives in that society is going to already have it once they get the visual cues of like the where people are and what's going on. And you don't really need... You don't need to fill anything in because it's it's not different than the world we've already got. Mr. Daffin, that sounds a lot like what you were saying at the top of the show about... Yeah, and I'd like to harken back to that, actually, because Doug said what I would have said. So instead, I'll say, um, I'm not sure if we can measure the amount of exposition that's in a story um, if we're going to, say, without sep- if we never separate um, direct and indirect exposition... Like we can we can measure the amount of direct exposition, obviously. It's the you know, amount of lines and the opening crawl to Star Wars or mm-hmm. something like that. But if we're going to combine direct and indirect exposition, um, then it's just what's the length of the movie then? I guess. Right. You make so, a fair point. Yeah, so instead, um I, I think Doug's right. If the more familiar we are um culturally with the with what's going on in the story um, the less unique the story is, I think the the more we can do indirect uh, exposition. That's fair enough. So maybe I need a broader uh, appreciation for the definition of indirect exposition, because I think it is fair to say that we maybe don't notice what exposition is happening if we're being referenced to the cliches we recognize in our own life. That being said, where is the opposite end of the spectrum for you guys where even the indirect exposition is so obvious that we can tell that we're being informed of things we don't yet know? If on the one hand you have people who are like us in situations like the ones we're used to, well, what's like the far end of the spectrum in genre? What do you guys think? You mean like, are you asking um, the windows, when is indirect exposition too obvious? Or? When is all exposition Well, okay, let me put it this way. Maybe I need to fix what I said at the top of the show. We could could start over again. No, no. (laughs) I mean, what what I think – what might be more accurate would be to say that I do think that there is a meaningful distinction between just referencing the audience to things they actually do already know and 
teaching the audience something they don't already know, even through indirect means. And I think that taking to the side, I think maybe there's a different word for the kind of exposition that just references to you, you to things you already know. Let's go back to just teaching the audience things they don't already know, one way or another. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So where is that most necessary? What do you guys think? Like, what kind of genres require that? Silent films. <laughs> Actually, okay. Okay. No, th- that's very good point. Very good point. And you're talking about, I imagine, like, the literal cards going up on the screen, oh, right? Yeah. I think the issue there is that that is a different kind of – that is the narration as opposed to the – unless you're talking about maybe at the beginning of the film they would have had, like – Okay, Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so are, uh, they're this old and they live in so-and-so and, and, uh, like, is that what you're talking about more or? I was making a joke. I understand. Got it. I don't know. Um, you can have it in, I'm not sure if, I'm not positive I understand your question. Um, but. Well, let me just give my example. Okay, please. I think, like, sci-fi is a kind of genre where you need to be doing exposition a lot. Mm Mm-hmm. Because, for example, Star Star Wars, right? You, like, we could honestly, probably, could have just dropped us straight into the movie without the opening crawl. The opening crawl has its charm, and I think it has its value. But other, okay, uh, Doug, what was your example earlier about? It would be absurd if I were to say to you right now, "Hey, man, would you mind if I used your faucet to get water?" Yeah, that um, would be ridiculous. Right. But in in sci fi movies, it's like. Hey, Make sure you say that into the microphone so that they understand what you're saying. Yeah, hey. that's funny. I get it because it's a microphone. The, that, <laughs> that thing in front of your face is what picks up uh, the audio that you say and transmits it onto the computer. No, exactly. It's called a microphone. But of course, like, what we do get in sci-fi movies all the time is like, hey, do you mind if I use your active data link stream to uh, upload my communications? Mm-hmm. Like, that's something that we would hear probably pretty commonly. And the direct corollary is like would you mind if i used your faucet in order to get cool water so i can drink it so that i think is an example of a genre that is on the far end of the spectrum where even in dialogue you're doing exposition see expository dialogue is what what i was really talking about is the stuff i hate the most and i would call that when it's done improperly i would call that direct exposition not not indirect i think I think it's indirect when we're talking about um, either visual cues in the background or something that's in combination with something moving the plot forward. So let me give you an example well, of what... Hang on. I have, I have an example of indirect um, exposition that I did not like. Uh, have either of y'all seen Logan? Yeah. No. All right. Well, um... Exposit- so the answer yeah. the answer is yes because he said did either of us so you're you're well, wrong. Well, but I'm about to explain it. Expositify. Yeah. So um, it's it's established pretty early on that Logan has become a pretty bad alcoholic, um, and it's it's established because he's constantly drinking and like there's a ton of empty bottles in the room. Uh, I I think that's a fine way to show he's an alcoholic. The reason I didn't like it is because like about. 20% of the bottles were um, bottles of Fireball, 
<laughs> because of product placement. Yeah. And, like, I think Wolverine's less of a badass because he's got a drinking problem, but he's using Fireball. What are you talking about? That stuff has antifreeze in it. That's that's hardcore. Uh-huh. It's also really cheap. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, that's, well, to me, it's like... it. Also, because of his healing factor, he, it takes a lot of alcohol to get him drunk. So you need something nice and cheap. Yeah, but you could do like military special or something for that. Fair enough. There's always you know, it's it's just to me it's um, Mad Dog yeah, 2020, and that's, not, and that's not that's not even high enough alcohol content. That's <laughs> not going to get you. You're right. Yeah, and that's the the problem with that to me isn't the the way it's um, exp- the exposition is exposed, but rather. Uh, the product placement. Yeah, I get mm-hmm. you. Interferes with it. But so, Doug, that's exactly a great example of indirect exposition. Another one that I was going to ask Doug Coonfield about is the example. That's me. That's you. Is the example of what about things like? Okay, this is this is becoming increasingly popular. The TV on in the background, and there's news on the TV, and the news is telling you what you need to know. And the news is exactly the thing that was just being referred to, or exactly the thing in the movie. Oh, yeah, they just kind of click it on. and Yeah, and, and yeah. it's suddenly the story that needs to be on. You turn oh, yeah. on the TV, and it's like huge sinkholes opening up in L.A. as the end of the world approaches more. Yeah. In, you and know. Not what laundry product are your kids trying to eat? Find out more at eight o'clock. Well, if they got any class, then they're they got the Tide Pods going on. Um, Wait, what? What are the not classy people eating? Uh, what's the the Dawn the Dawn Pods? That's like a new thing. <laughs> Is that people are eating dish soap now? Well, listen, we can't. We're not all bourgeoisie who can afford uh, Tide Pods I, every time we want to yeah. snack. Dawn Pods are not that much more <laughs> like cheap. Nice brand. Tide I'm pods just kidding. Oh yeah, there you go. I think nice brand is Kroger though. See here, so here's where I kind of no. Wanna... Nice is Walgreens. Oh, you're right. Yeah. So it strikes me that I know me some off brands. We've talked about direct exposition and some things we like about it and don't like about it. We talked about some of the ways in which exposition is necessary in different contexts and the way that it can be good if it's indirect. But I want to talk about a final group of film and television, and I've decided that this is actually my favorite category. And it's a, it's a kind of movie and television that I'm going to categorize as films that don't care about you. And it's films where you want exposition? Shove it. We're not going to give you hardly any. There's stuff about this that you really want to know. You're not getting any of it. Okay. Have we all seen Mad Max Fury Road? No. Oh, God. I have. So in Mad Max have, Fury Road. Have we come up with an example of a show that the three of us have seen? Besides- no. Which Some is, Star Trek episodes? No. I mean, yeah. I don't know. Well, and then we're also going to talk about Bright in a minute, so it's just a total nightmare. But, I mean... No, it's good. So, well, it's a problem for other Doug. So, the problem is... Okay. Mad Max Fury Road. You are dropped into this world where... If you haven't seen the other Mad Maxes, but even kind of if you have, there's a lot of questions about this world. It's post-apocalyptic. Yes, but... What caused anything? You don't ever really seem to know. There's no explanation of what's going on in the world. There's no delivery of any kind of news about, like, well, what what is the progress forward of characters or anything. You're introduced to a society that seems to have a hierarchy and a warrior culture and a lot of other things. And the only stuff you learn about it is these incidental little moments that barely tell you enough so you can start to kind of maybe formulate a general picture of what's happening but the movie never be- betrays itself with unrealistic dialogue. And none of it – well, one, that movie has like no dialogue. 
Like, yeah, there's well, like four lines in the whole film. Well, I mean, just like even the warriors yelling at each other, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you understand they have this like Norse Valhalla concept of religion, and they talk to each other in a realistic way based on that. There, it's all about like, oh, witness me, brothers, because I'm off to. Uh, I actually don't remember what they're. Actually, is it Valhalla? I think it's Valhalla. I think they literally say they're going to Valhalla. But the whole thing about, like, let me spray chrome on my face, they don't ever explain that. You just get a vague sense that that's, like, an honor ritual. I think they were just getting high off spray paint, dude. No, but it's clearly – like, you know what I mean? Like, they were clearly – like, they had the thing that if you're about to die, a way that you honor yourself for the afterlife is to spray chrome onto your face. Hmm. Um all the, the when you know the the warriors who are half lifes or whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, what does that mean? We don't know. We know that they need blood. How do we know that? Because well, one of them grabs some blood from the protagonist at some point. There's just so little the movie tells you, and I love it for that. So I'm wondering if um, because none of those details were necessarily like plot important. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if we just have a general concept of like what post-apocalyptic the world would be that they didn't need to do it just because we're all kind of there like we got it we we see post-apocalyptic we're there but i i think that that's what i like that's what i'm saying is that i like is that they basically just said listen we're just going to tell our story and we know that the story is intelligible enough that you know that much but as to all these details and things that you wish you knew about the story and you would like – for me, after I watched that movie, I was like digging through Wikia and like trying to figure out like, oh, what's this? What's this? Like what content am I not getting? What books have I not read? What have the movies said? And you know what? There was no information out there. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't there because the movie doesn't care about you. Right. And I really respect it for that. You know, I think post-apocalyptic movies are probably a really good example of ways to do – I think, go back to the Fallout, is that what yeah, you want to talk about? Yeah, Fallout. Um, Book of Eli is also a great example. Book There's of Eli very, is very example. little. Have you seen Book of Eli, Doug? I think so, actually. Yeah. Book of Eli Borderline is a Fallout movie. Yeah, there's very little explanation. Um, exp- there's a lot of explanation through like little tiny hints about what caused the world to end. We know there's some kind of flash, and some people were underground. And if you weren't underground, you went blind. And that's about all you get from these little bitty peppered hints throughout that come through really what I felt were very natural forms of dialogue. There's only – I think there's only one sin in that movie, and it's a sin of, of exposition we actually haven't talked about yet, which is the the supervillain speech. Mm-hmm. You guys know what I'm talking about, mm-hmm. Mr. Daffin? I am not sure if I remember – well, what I mean by the super – do you know what I mean by the supervillain speech? Oh, yeah, yeah. Like the, the classic – like fun of in, uh, in The Incredibles. Oh, absolutely. It's the classic, Mr. Bond, here's what's going to happen since I have you in my clutches. No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. I expect you to die. So um, the – I think the moment in this movie is when I think the bad guy just comes out and says, I've realized that religion – was an incredible way to control the masses before the end of the world. And if I can get my hands on a Bible, then I can manipulate the masses in my own version of post-apocalyptic Christianity. And that's what I'm trying to do. Mm-hmm. And Eli's got a Bible, so I need it. And I think he just basically comes out and says that at a certain point. But other than yeah. that, the movie does a great job mm-hmm. with non-offensive uh, 
exposition. Yeah, so there's a book uh, that I read in for one of my classes in 2014 called uh, Waiting for the Barbarians. It's by J.M. Coetzee. Uh, He's got it on his uh, bookshelf right here. No, I don't. Um, I'm pointing at another book by J.M. Coetzee. Yes. So, um, He's but, pointing at Disgrace. Yes. So, uh, Waiting for the Barbarians was a 1980 book that it sort of fights um, the concept of exposition. And, and it's um, probably the book I should have referred to when we talked about if you can make a... How much how little exposition could you put into something? Um, it's It's hard to describe. It's sort of... It's very hard to describe because it has such li- so little context or exposition that it could give. But uh, it follows uh, the story of a magistrate on a border town um, between the sort of colonized, civilized world and the barbarian world. Um, and he uh, and his interactions with the um, with certain people out from outside. Um, but like the the final uh, words of the book, and I I've been on my phone trying to find the quote, and I just can't seem to find it. Um, but it's basically him saying, you know, in the end, I've spent um, so I've spent my whole life searching for context, and I've found nothing. Uh, hmm. Hmm. Where, okay. it, something along those lines uh, were the final words, and it's kind of the the feeling that the book leaves you with too um it's very good i recommend it to both of you uh but yeah it's if if you want to talk about sort of apocalypse or movies that hate the reader almost or movies that hate Hate the the viewer viewer, yeah um books that hate the reader by denying them context that's definitely one of them oh that's a really great point i'm glad you brought that up um i mean so so here's the thing when i say the movie or the series hates you or, or rather, what I say is it doesn't care about you. And I think that that's – to me, that's such an honest perspective. Like that's such a like genuine way to drop your viewer into the world by not acting like the world is a weird kind of world where it explains itself to you. I don't know if it's not caring about you so much as expecting you to have the competence to figure it out. So for movies like Mad Max, there is no way to figure it out, and that's what I mean. Like, I think that there are there are films where it has a great deal of respect for the person viewing it, where you are expected to figure out things that are readily available if you put some mental work into it and not just spoon-feed it, feed it to you. And then there's movies like Mad Max where it's like, no, you just don't get to know. I mean, you're going to know the bare minimum of what Max would know. You're going to know what Max would know. And that's the most you're going to know. And if you can glean something from that, hey, man, cool for you. But ultimately, we don't care about that aspect of your appreciation of this film. Now let's circle back to Bright, because I think there's ways in which Bright does some of this really well, too. For example, how much does Bright tell us about, like, the actual high-level, like, uh, interspecies politics and the war from wherever ago or the dark lord or whatever so they say that 2000 years ago the dark lord uh went to war uh all the species except for the orcs sided or formed an alliance to banish the dark lord the orcs were marked from that point as betrayers they've been uh like i guess a third class kind of a 
society since then. Um, elves are the bankers. They run, <clears throat> they run the governments. They run, um, like they've got a, like a world government, like a global elven government and also like a bunch of banks and stuff and they run all the financials so they're all super rich they've got the best technology but they all kind of stay to themselves um okay sure but like i found i found the quote oh um, yeah yeah from the waiting for the barbarians uh this is not the scene i dreamed of like much else nowadays i leave it feeling stupid like a man who has lost his way long ago but presses on along a road that may lead nowhere um, and then I wrote after that on the Facebook post, leave it to the book I'm writing my final paper on to mock my inability to write it. Yeah. I love that. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so, so here's my larger point. I think oh, yeah, by... I got a lot of information on Bright for having watched it the one time. Well, that's fair. But, but I think that what I really realized that the movie had done something to me that I appreciated was at the very end when like, you know, some like really high level stuff had basically happened in front of our main characters, right? Like, these are some of the clearly the main actors in what if you had made a movie about the dark forces of so and so against the the government and everything else on the other side and this like you know back and forth of these people are trying to resurrect the dark lord these people are trying to get control of the situation that would have been a very different film with a lot more of the kind of exposition where you would start to understand the powers in play right mm-hmm. by the end of this movie we have we have basically no information about the um the female elf that is the bright who is with the protagonist for right. a lot of the film. Mm-hmm. We have basically no information about her. We figure out eventually she's the sister of the big bad protagonist or antagonist at the end. And then like when everything just sort of explodes and they're like, "Okay, that was a blurry ride." They basically end up saying to the the uh the officials, like the the professionals, the government people who come in, we don't have any. Not we have no idea. We just know nothing. Like all that was just we're beat cops who were put in a weird situation, and we have precious little understanding of what just happened. Mm-hmm. And when that kind of that moment came out, I realized that I really appreciated the film for not spending all of its time doing to me like that interrogation scene. Yeah. So I really appreciated it for that. Um. Okay. So. Any other thoughts about films that basically refuse to give you exposition, even if you might need it or want it? This is another side of this, by the way. How do you feel? Because when I, what I feel when a movie doesn't give me enough is a weird kind of satisfaction with the with how genuine that perspective of the story was. But how do you guys feel about it? I mean. Either one of you does. Have you ever seen something where you just ended up at the end feeling like, I don't think I know enough? Um, I mean, I feel like, I don't know, like every Mission Impossible, I just I just don't get it. Like, I, I come out of them going, like, I don't really know what just happened. Is that a failure of narration or a failure of exposition? Uh, is, ooh, I don't know. Um, I just... Maybe I'm just not paying enough attention to Mission Impossibles. I haven't seen any since like the third one. I don't know they're on like Mission Impossible 15 or something right now. But um, must be a really impossible mission if it's taken 15 <laughs> movies. I don't. I or they're just really bad at categorizing because he's gotten through the last 14. They they have a hundred percent success rate with impossible missions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I don't know. Or the just... Impossibleers. Yeah. They do the impossible. Oh God. 
Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it is just a lack of context or a lack of explanation. Or I'm not sure if I really understand the difference between that and narration at this point. Um, well, that's that's uh, that's that's unfortunate. I mean, and I think maybe it's because as we've identified over the course of this episode that the lines can get very blurry. That's what I'm, yeah, that's like, what I'm feeling. When we talk about like, for example, those captain logs, is that narration? Is it exposition? I mean, it often blurs the lines. I think. Um, because part of it is the story that you're being told, but a lot of it is like, here's just what you need to know in order for what's happening between the characters to make sense to you. Yeah. I think Star Trek also does it a lot with, um, like, again, the technology stuff where they're like, I'm in, this is the warp coil six and it does this one thing that we all knew it did. And I'm going to explain it right now because it's going to fix this major plot hole that we forgot about, or it's going to beat this enemy. Captain, we're going to have to detach the saucer section and move to the battle bridge where we'll be able to stave off opponents until the saucer section, which, as you know, is full of civilians, is able to get clear. Futurama had a fantastic um, way, like, two-liner that they made fun of that with. Um, they, they said, you know, we're going to use this device to do this thing, and to which another character replies, you know, it's like putting an egg in a microwave. Right. To, because that... Like too much air in a balloon. Yeah, like too much air in a balloon. Yeah. Yeah. Which is the which is the second half, usually, of those expositions. If they, they do techno babble yeah. and then... Then they, they make it into some bizarre metaphor. That, in fact, yeah. is the most bizarre. Because imagine explaining... Me, like, explaining to you, I need to go get water out of the faucet. It's just like getting it from a well. Maybe maybe being patronizing is uh, is like being the new type of manners in the twenty third century. Oh yeah, that's that, probably that, it. That's like a weird kind of um, a conceit that we might all agree upon just to get through it. Yeah, yeah. head cannon. Yeah, yeah. It's just like pat- patronism. Uh, what would you call it? Patronization? Uh, yeah, patronism. Patronizing. Patronizism. Patronizism is... Uh, it's a Patronus. Yeah. It's yeah. a Patronus. Well, yeah. Doug Daffin, I, I don't feel like I really got from you. Like, have you, ever, have you ever come to the end of film or television and thought to yourself, I wish I knew more of what was happening right now? Um. Yeah, except it was a video game. Uh, Perfect. Dark Souls. Oh yeah, which is fantastic in its method of um of this whatever this episode's about. I forgot for a second. Exposition. Exposition. See that that game <laughs> doesn't just not lo- care about you. you. Yeah. It actually hates you. Well, you it it doesn't hate you. It just doesn't baby you. But um the the thing about Dark Souls is you could play through the whole game and not understand a, a lick of what's going on and beat the game. And not understand anything about the setting, um, the narrative. And you can do that with a lot of video games by skipping cutscenes, or, it, you know, etc. But with Dark Souls, it's actually, um, even if you look at the cutscenes, because the story is all in the item descriptions, um, which is a really silly thing to look at. Uh, and they're long. Yeah. And so, actually, one of the famous... So, when I, when I really thought of this topic to start with, Stefan... Exposition is a word that came to me not in film and television, but really more from video games. Because what, like, one of the things that we say all the time about things like an item description that's fourteen pages long and tells you all kinds of stuff about the world—that is pure exposition. 
is what we call that. Right? Yes, but it's it's very optional exposition. Yes, sir. And that's that's something kind of unique to video games. Actually, let's talk about optional exposition. The new Star Wars movies. What about them? First Order. And you know what? Not just even the First Order. A lot that's going on post-breakup of the Empire. Because a lot of it depends on you having read the Expanded Universe books. Well, no. Well, hold on. Because the EU stuff's not canon. It's not canon, but a lot of it is incorporated into the new Star Wars movies. Right. Such I think... that if I'm you glad want... it's not canon, to be honest. And, but I think that if you really, truly wanted to understand all the characters and stuff going on in the new movies, I think you actually would have to read up on the Expanded Universe. Um, I don't want to bust your bubble. Uh, they Go took for it. everything that would be canon from the Expanded Universe that would be necessary for the understanding of... Um, the movies and they put them in for the most part the visual encyclopedias um there's a lot of details in the Wait, visual encyclopedias that? they're books that come out um that have like descriptions of the ships or like the senate chamber or like who's the president it's like um i don't know i used to read them when i was a kid i'd go to borders and just like flip through them for a while but it's like uh, about maybe a 50 to 60 page book of like the Star Wars Episode Seven Visual Encyclopedia, and it's just a bunch of um, stills, and it kind of gives context for each. And the each exposition's in there. Uh, the details that uh, I guess it's, I guess it's exposition, but you'll get like little bits of information about um, why Leia's no longer in the Senate, or um, why it was necessary for the Galactic Republic to um, have uh, the rebellion not the rebellion what do they call them now when they're not rebellion um the alliance the alliance they'll have the alliance off to the like off to the side that's not technically a part of the thing and it provides a little bit of context i liked them better when they were the rebels you could you could say like rebel pride well they're the rebels okay that's that's enough um but also the novelizations that come out after the movies um provide a lot of context Awesome, but this is exactly my point. I feel like you've really just set out for me, like, that's it. That's your, there's your optional exposition, where if you want to understand the films better, uh, you're not going to get it in the film. Go find it somewhere else. We've got some other content available for you. Yeah, like the part where Hux is like, the lies of the Republic, right before they blew it up. <laughs> like, I remember sitting in it going like, what's he lying? What's, what lies? What the hell is he talking about? And it's not until um, I actually read a, a Wikipedia article. Ooh. That describe like that filled in kind of the blanks from the novelization. If you read the novelization of Episode Seven, that kind of explained what the hell he's talking about in that angry speech. See, that is the kind of thing that it would be an audience member might be confused about, and then told basically, "Oh, you want that to make sense to you? Go read a book. Leave. Go somewhere <laughs> else. Find your explanations elsewhere." Okay, gentlemen, we have talked through. All different oh, kinds hang, of exposition. Real quick, though, um, a movie that does that fantastically that I haven't seen, but I've heard about it, is Cloverfield. Um, oh, yeah, hell Cloverfield's yeah. Cloverfield's, like, entirely, or not entirely, dude. but it's so super optional. Mm-hmm. Anyways, let's uh, let's wrap this up. Yeah, oh, I just want to say, I think we didn't touch it, and we don't need to touch on it right now, but um, I think sequels do a big thing about exposition at the very beginning um the first one that pops into my head is is my favorite movie ghostbusters 2 
starts off with um, two of the Ghostbusters. It looks like they're going to go bust some ghosts, but it turns out they're actually going to a child's party. And as the kids want He-Man, so they get kicked out. And you really quickly get the context that the Ghostbusters are no longer hot shit and they're kind of desperate for money. But then they go off on like maybe a two minute rant about um, why they lost the money to each other when they were both there for the lawsuits. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's like, we got sued by every division of government in the state and the federal level for everything in New York and all these regulations that we broke and now we're all broke. Like, yeah, I know. That's why you just gave me 50 bucks. Like, it was, it's ridiculous. But um, So it starts strong and then quickly tails off. Yeah, they could have done really well and then they were like... But Ghostbusters 2 is still the best movie. Well, before we just kick off into final thoughts, do you guys have any, like, I mean, we've talked about direct exposition, indirect exposition, exposition in context where it's desperately needed, exposition in context where it's barely needed, and everything out even into the context of here's here's movies, films, and video games that just, they have resolved they're not going to do exposition even where you really want it, and then the kinds of ones where they say, oh, you want exposition? Go find it, loser. So what do you guys think, like, having had this discussion, what are, what are like, some reflections you have on what is valuable to you about, like, what to you is meaningful and good about exposition? What do you want? What do you need based on everything that we've talked about? Um, I think it's a uh, matter of form follows function, and it depends on the type of story you're going to tell. Uh I I think direct exposition is useful. Like, I think direct exposition um, isn't as much of a sin as people like to think it is. Um, I don't like dialogue exposition, no matter what, because of the things we've talked about. But like, indirect exposition is. You know, we've we've been um, we've been talking about how much we like it, but we've been talking about how much we like it, sort of in the context of. movies and and video games and stuff where it fits the setting uh like post 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 apocalyptic <laughs> um movies thing things where history's broken been broken so context is now broken mm-hmm. um it it'd be different like if we had a rom-com that was entirely indirect exposition like uh you know still still for or a, a movie composed of like still frames of stuff on the fucking nightstand or something and the movie's called one night stand and it's a rom-com oh my god you, oh, oh my it. god make it a thing <laughs> but like all right it's... shut it down you know what hang on disclaimer <laughs> hang on <laughs> disclaimer disclaimer uh all rights reserved intellectual property uh no one else gets to have that idea that's that's Chris, that's not how the law works. That's my idea. That's not how the law works. I invented works. that that's idea. Also Chris, that. it's also that's I was going to say it. You jackass. <laughs> okay, I, listen. I don't think you've taken IP law. No, I haven't. No, but we no, were no, taking no. video game law. And we had a premiere yeah. uh, for like two hours. So now we know everything. Uh, other, yeah. Other Doug and I are just making a joke. Trust me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, Doug, you were saying? Yeah, anyways, that'd be a really like frustrating uh, way to do a rom-com. So, um, I, I think that the, I, I think exposition's a craft, like any other, uh, just like setting up a shot, 
Um, just like sound balancing, editing, uh, just like dialogue. Sound balancing is is a craft. You're right. Yeah, and I'm not very good at it. Sorry, listeners. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I uh, that's my thought on it. Like I I think there's, um, I, I think it has to fit the story you're trying to tell. And to clarify, is that your final thought or just the answer to the question I asked? I think the question you asked makes a fantastic uh, question for a final thought. I think that's fair to say. Uh, Mr. Coonfield, what are your final thoughts on the subject, sort of around or maybe not around the question I asked? I think um, I think it comes back to showing versus telling uh, in my writer's workshops that I've been a part of. Real quick, uh, could I do... Um... I, I have an example of a movie without context. No, oh, yeah, go ahead. It's a film within a film. Um, have y'all seen Idiocracy? Yes. So then, okay, so um, I have. I'm still going to uh, do some exposition for the audience. In Idiocracy, uh, they send a normal person forward 500 years in the future. Um, he's like frozen in a cryogenic uh, thing. And he, he comes out, and instead of the future being some miraculous, like, wonder world of technology and progress, instead people got really stupid. Um, the number one film of the year for, it's like 2502 or something, uh, is a film called Ass. And it's just an hour and a half of an ass on screen uh, farting. And there's no context or exposition. Okay. Well, as much, as much as that's a, you know, a joke in the movie, I can now see what you mean by a quote-unquote high art form in which you create a story with nothing <laughs> to exposition right. about. Right, and then later, like, when the, when the character's running for president, he's like, we want to make movies that are better. We want to know whose ass it is and why they're farting. So there's your exposition. So they actually want exposition. Yeah, they want exposition. All right, Mr. Kingfield. Anyway, sorry, I, I just felt the need to say that. What do you think, sir? Yeah, so, um, sorry. No, that was, I really appreciate the addition of the ass. Um... Yeah, so in writer's workshops that I did in undergrad, uh, we really focused on showing versus telling. And if you can provide exposition through um, talking about something other than exposition, if you can give context by by just saying anything else, by just describing a room rather than actually saying and then Abraham Lincoln didn't actually get assassinated, and so history's different because of this. Like if you can do it in a different way, um, I think, I think it 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 makes your viewer work a little bit harder. But we're capable people; we can all handle that. Mm. Um, expect better from your readers your viewers and your listeners and you're gonna have a better product so exposition isn't inherently bad it's never bad but delivering it in a lazy way when it represents lazy directing and lazy writing that's the part i don't like i absolutely agree it's a good point um so i i just finished the uh the second of a two-day uh brian garner led class about writing in plain language and everything else that he has to tell you about writing is he wearing the turtleneck today or was that yesterday both days oh wow both days uh different turtlenecks i think i imagine um 
So one of the one of the little notes he made from a writing perspective is that the form of your writing is the pane of glass through which a reader can understand the points you're trying to make. And the more transparent that pane of glass, the less people will focus on it, which is exactly what you want because what you want them to be doing is focusing on what the view is through your glass. And I think in a lot of ways, exposition is the same. Uh, sort of on both of your points, I think, what it ends up being is an exercise in how can you get across what you need to get across in creative ways, in clever ways, so that people aren't focusing on the fact that what you're doing fundamentally is exposition and just appreciating what they're learning. To put it another way, how many times during the course of this episode have we had to clarify like, well, that doesn't sound like exposition, that sounds like narration, or oh, is this exposition, or is this something else? Or, well, how do we characterize that? Is that exposition? How do we clarify exposition? Is this exposition? Is that exposition? I mean, basically from the first moment of the episode. Was that just narration? <laughs> well, that just there was their narration. Okay. Um, I mean, from the very start of the episode, Doug Daffin was asking us, you know, what do we mean by exposition and how is it different than just, you know. So from start to finish, I think what we've identified is to the extent that we appreciate things about exposition and to the extent that we don't appreciate things about exposition, it kind of boils down to how much we are noticing what's going on. It's easy to notice bad exposition, but it's harder to talk about good exposition and the stuff that we like about it. So I guess the final thought I have would be, it is, just like the form of writing, like a pane of glass. It should be as transparent as possible. And with that being said, we sure appreciate you tuning in for another episode of the podcast. We were delighted to bring you Mr. Doug Coodfield for this episode. Hello. And Thanks, uh, we hope you had enough, as much fun as we had I making did. this for you. Uh, that being said, thank you very much for listening. We'll see you next time. Have a great night. I like stained glass.